straight after we got married, he, he started to change. I didn't know what had happened. Um, I didn't know until 2018 what had happened. Um, but he told me he had two personalities and while I was being strangled, the one thought that I had was, when he does this, he's gonna go straight up and kill the children. I had this experience of seeing behind the wizard's curtain of the so-called systems and also the work I did in Microsoft. So I saw behind the wizard's curtains of the globalists. I saw behind the wizard's curtain of the legal profession, of the government, of the police. Carbon 60 or C60 first gained notoriety back in 2012 from a study that increased the lifespan of rats by a whopping 90%. Since that breakthrough study, scientists have conducted thousands of studies showing C60 not only has a very real potential extending lifespan, but it also has been shown to be better than any other substance ever studied to reduce inflammation, eliminate free radicals, provide powerful antioxidants, and more. After the famous rat study, scientists at Live Longer Labs realized a human, not industrial formula needed to be made. That's when they set out to be the first lab in the world to focus on what is best for human consumption of C60. This led Live Longer Labs to pioneer a high quality, 99.9% .9 pure C60 refined without solvents in oils that work best for humans, and that is black seed oil. Look it up yourself. Black seed oil has been known as the universal healer for millennia, and more modern studies confirmed its benefits as a potent antioxidant and for anti-inflammation. Simply, it's not like other oils. It's better. To try this amazing product, go to sarahwestall.com under shop. Remember, members of Ebeneer save 10%, and all listeners can save 5% using the coupon found at sarahwestall.com under shop. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have the most interesting person coming to the show today. Her name is Lisa Temple. She is a woman from Ireland who is being heavily persecuted by this group of cabal thugs for standing up for victims, including her own children, through the years. She frightens them because she has learned the law and has literally won hundreds of cases for her clients. And she also knows nine languages and has a deep understanding of their world and what motivates them. She's going to talk about her background and her early life in this interview so you get an idea of where she got such a rich education. But her story is really complex. And so I have to do a little bit of an overview so you will be able to put this interview into context. You can tell as I go through, I ask her a lot of questions and she explains it, but it's really long. It's going to be put into three parts she starts talking about her early life all the way to present day, where she's facing trial this Thursday, which could lead to five to seven years in prison. And what she's being charged for is, I in this country, it's just pure self-defense. It's ridiculous. And in fact, she didn't do anything wrong. And you're going to hear about that story. But it starts with part one, where she talks about early life, but then gets into the story of her being married to this demon-possessed man. He has this split personality and he came from this banking family and she didn't know he had this split personality. There's this Keith guy and then this weirdo called Cuban. And Cuban, she talks about it, his eyes turn black. He becomes this whole different person. And she's going to talk about that part of the story. And then part two, 
Cuban or Keith gets involved in this whole sex club underworld after she gets divorced, she talks about that and she wants to keep her kids out of that world. And this is how it all starts. And the whole cabal starts going after her. And then in part three, she explains the attack and the persecution in more detail that she said she had black water thugs by the bank sent to her house. There were 19 men in black. She said they, they seemed like soldiers. So they were probably mercenary types. And she learned they were from Blackwater. And she believes it was the bank that did it. But they cut off all her finances, credit cards. When you listen to this story, to me, it sounds like a bunch of babies, this cabal, a bunch of, they have this personal thing against her. They, they're acting like little boys and they have, they're doing everything to just take her down. In my opinion, they should just leave her alone and go away because she's not doing anything wrong. And it just, it's this nature. They're psychopaths and they're frustrated because she got the better of them for too long and they want to just take her down at all costs. She just knows how to get under their skin, I think. And that just angers them. She sent a letter to over 250 of the top of the top officials in Ireland, and she just laid it out. I'll have an attachment to that letter so you can read it yourself. She also has an interesting backstory where she was an executive at Microsoft, and she was asked to do things that she thought was unethical and walked away, walked away from her whole life at Microsoft because she didn't believe what Bill Gates was asking her directly to do in her conversation. She walked out of of that conversation and went her own way because she thought he was unethical of what he was asking. We don't really get into any of that. We, she touches on it a little bit, but I really hope she stays out of prison because there is so many interesting things that I want to talk to her about. In our pre-talk interview, she brought up some things of why she thinks the feminist movement is there as a means to actually take women down and to devalue women. And the reason I bring that up a little bit is because you, you're going to listen to this and think she's a feminist and whatever. I, she, she doesn't believe that the feminist movement, she doesn't believe that the feminist movement has the right intentions for women, that it's being used against them. She also has a different view of Christianity and of the world of you know, the cult cabal world that you probably haven't heard elsewhere. I really want to have her back to be able to talk about this, her nine languages and her background and her exposure to so much of this through helping hundreds of victims. She's learned a lot, plus her her different languages and her own family's involvement, her husband being part of that world. So I really want to talk more to her, but at this point we wanted to get her story out. So I hope you watch this whole thing and get something out of it. It's complicated, but that's kind of how this is. It's life, and things are complicated, and it's not just a simple, the cabal's going after you. Those are people, too, who are all messed up, and they're struggling with their own involvement in a really dirty underworld, and those people need need to make decisions about their involvement in those kind of crimes and their own free will to make choices that are unethical and to get out and to, and to do the right thing. So I'm really hoping in her case that people decide to do the right thing and that she prevails. 
but we'll see. You know, the systems are very corrupt around the world. They're psychotic. It's almost like our governments are split personalities like our husband was. Like they're demon-possessed on one hand and then good people on the other hand. And that so many of us only get to see the personality that they present to us, but there's another personality there that is like a demon-possessed person. So before I get into this interview, I hope you go to my website and look at some of the articles that I've been publishing. One in particular, I talk about how our Navy command has been taken over by foreign commanders, in particular by NATO, and what's behind that. I'm going to have somebody come on next week and talk about that more in detail. And then, of course, we have the UN and the World Economic Forum making a joint agreement to accelerate Agenda 2030. So I'm going to have Alex Newman come on about that as well. But I have all these articles on my website and some videos. And so if you go there periodically, you just keep seeing kind of big picture things that are going on. I keep publishing that. I can't cover everything in my videos. I cover what I can in my videos that I think are interesting and important. And then I also try to give a full picture with my articles that I post from different journalists that I have become affiliated with and my own articles. So just take a look at that and please share that as far as wide as you can. Stories that you think are meaningful. That's how we're going to get this out because I'm censored everywhere, as you know. So let's get into this really interesting story. Remember, it's a three-parter. It's long. I'm going to try to get these up right away, right in a row, so that you'll have access to them quickly. So let's get into this interesting story with Lisa Temple. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Sarah. I'm so excited to talk to you. Yeah, we had some uh, pre-interview discussion, and you're one interesting person, and I think people really like you. And I, what I was hoping to do was uh, have people understand what your background is. You're being persecuted in Ireland. And so in order for people to understand why, can you talk about what your background is? And then we'll start getting into the persecution and you know what is behind that. Okay. Uh, very briefly, I uh, my name is Lisa. I'm a mother of two daughters. Um, my most thing I'm most... Um, happy about in my life. I was born in Ireland in Wicklow in 1970 on St. Patrick's Day. Good old St. Patrick. And um, I grew up in the 70s in Ireland, which uh, was an interesting time. Um, I always had a deep love for learning and a curiosity. I, I don't think I ever felt from the moment I uh, came here that I had ever been here before and everything just seemed on one hand, nature and everything seems so beautiful, but I never really understood people or systems, definitely. Um, I then remember I met uh, a Christian uh, a presentation college brother called Brother David when I was nine, and I was being taught up by the nuns. And we were over in the school playing rounders, and this brother uh, asked me, what were the nuns teaching me or what was I learning? And I remember looking at him thinking, we don't learn anything in school. We're just always afraid and ashamed. And that was the way the nuns kept us. So he invited me over to the school. And um, I remember going into this school and it was like the big wooden doors and the, sh the cook opened the door. It was the shiny floors and the smell of bacon, bacon and steamed cabbage. 
And uh, Brother David led me into this room, which was full from floor to ceiling of books. And there was a big light, a big window, and the light was shining through the window. And I, I don't know if you know, when the light comes through and the the dust is in the room, it just looks so kind of mystical. Yeah. And yep. he, he began, he opened up a book and he said, let's start with, I think it was Socrates we started with at nine. So that began an incredible every single Sunday from then until I was about 21. He taught me everything. Um uh, quantum physics, physics, mathematics, theology, everything, you know, he he brought this, this world and its symbols and its meanings and everything. And he too, and I think he told me up exactly for these times because. Okay, okay. Who, who, who was, you said this brother, who was this brother? Uh, so there was a boys school, which was a presentation college in Bray. And there was a girls school and I was in the girls school it was run by the nuns, the Loretta nuns. The boys' school was run by the Presentation College brothers. And this was one of the brothers. And apparently he had become a Christian brother when he was about 16. He was a polymath. Uh, he had won medals for everything, you know, in all the different subjects rather than just one subject. What's a uh, polymath? Well, polymath, I suppose, well, like somebody who does a PhD would be a monomath. Like they would be, they would have a lot of information about one thing. Mm -hmm. So a polymath would be someone who would be able to take a lot of PhDs and find the threads in between them and know a lot about a lot of areas and okay. see the, yeah. yeah, they see so they the know, bigger picture and weave everything together. Picture, okay. Yeah, yep. a, a, an ability to, to balance lots of different concepts yep. and the threads underlying, um, they'd be the ultimate philosophers really, I think. So, um, yeah, I'm really blessed. I mean, I know a lot of people had bad experience in Ireland with the, the church and things, but he would have always represented to me an incredible representation of what a teacher should be and that he didn't tell me anything. He would give me work to do and he would tell me to go home and think about it and he would challenge me on it. So and why, he, why were you, why did he decide to teach you and did the boys get that level of teaching? Well, he did. He did invite a couple of the boys. This had started during the summer in as well, but they were just bored. And one of the things he did was he used to do the timetable for the teachers during the summer. And it was on a big board and there was different stickers for different subjects and teachers. And this was before computers were there. And he had al an, like an algorithm that he had done out of how to like manage the whole school with stickers and things. And the boys were bored. And I think, you know, he was asking if you want to study more. He loved teaching and guiding and empowering learning. And I love learning. So we just had this. It was like Tuesdays with Mari from oh, the age great. of 29. And I miss him dearly. And I can tell you, if he was alive now, myself and my daughters would not have been alone in what we've had to deal with in the last 14 years. I know that. Okay, so now let's talk about going from there. He taught you so much about so many things. And then you've gone from there of learning even more. I mean, he, he created a learning in mind for you. Like you were just, he really, what a gift he gave you. In some ways it's a curse, but he gave yeah. you a gift. But okay, so what came from there? Why, where are you at now? And how did it transform into you being persecuted? Well, where to start? Um, so what he what Brother David did was he had a knowing which is called gnosis and I had a knowing which is called gnosis. And we recognize that in each other. And a knowing can't be explained. 
But when you have a knowing about what the true nature of consciousness is, and then you find yourself down here in this um, veil of of opportunity and forgetfulness, um, you do need to have some sort of an ability to interface the the spirit of knowing with the information that's coming until you can find where certain information comes close to bringing you back to knowing, whereas the majority of information actually pulls you away from it. So when I kind of finished my studies with him, I had this deep yearning to become a nun, but not just a nun. I wanted to become a Carmelite. But I went to do what's called a candidacy. And it was like weekends in the Loretta nuns practicing, you know, learning to become a nun. I loved the idea. And then at the end, I decided I want to be a Carmelite, which is an enclosed order nun. And I was only 17 or 18. What's an enclosed order nun versus? So an enclosed order nun lives in a convent and doesn't speak for their entire life and stays oh, in a wow. state. You yeah. wanted to be somebody who doesn't speak ever? Okay, keep going. <laughs> keep yeah. going. Yeah. What would um, be the point of that? I mean, just, just, I mean, how, that's just such an interesting thing. Because in the experience of this body, um, which is so limiting, and this, you know, world, which is so beautiful, where consciousness is playing hide and seek, uh, without the interruptions of all of the noise around, it would be lovely to just consistently turn inwards and connect in to that consciousness and deal with the the alchemizing challenges that are required by being in this body without being in or interrupted. That's what I wanted to do. Oh, and that's a, isn't that a very um, I'm surprised the church would do that and help people there only because it's a maybe the church isn't I mean church probably doesn't care but it would be a very self it would all be about self versus about others well I suppose within those communities they had to also be very kind and considerate and look after each other's and certainly the communities that I was in touch with say in Italy because I I lived over there in an old Templar night healing center it was beautiful that I purchased mm-hmm. um and myself and my daughters lived there and it was attached to the Clausura di Santa Clarissa, you know, and you would go into that place of silence and one nun would interface with the public. And, you know, they had this beautiful, kind, pure, loving, caring for each other. They would they would cook, they would eat. They had a beautiful choir. But it was it was quite a beautiful existence, I have to say. And it was a great example. I think they're, they, they're supposed to be an example because not every body in this earth is made to be out there interacting with society some people are are more happy to be apart from society and then to be of assistance to individuals in society who maybe do want to make a difference or improve things as a kind of a sacred place to go and talk to but they don't need to be known they don't need to be um that makes sense so their service to others would be um, when somebody needs that kind of guidance clarity and clarity yeah okay that would make sense okay so what happened since then that's so fascinating what happened since then so the nun said to me at the end she said look I think you know you also want to study Italian you want to do these things why don't you go to university live a little bit and then see how you feel when you come back and so I agreed with her and then I went off to join um, to go to university to study Italian, ancient civilizations and uh, French. 
And I, in order to pay for that degree, I was working in the airlines full time. So I was flying through the night, having very little sleep, coming back and then going into college all day. And uh, on a rainy day like today, it's raining. Um, um, four people walked across the street. I was trying to learn to drive. I nearly knocked into them. And one of them stood in the street and I said, you know, you nearly died. And he said, I knew that it could have aquaplaned if you did this, that and the other. I thought it was a very strange answer. And it turned out then I met him the next day when I was in work. He was one of the pilots. I was one of the air hostesses and he is the person that I married. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So then what came of that and how did this all develop? Are you still with him, by the way? No. So he was a Protestant Irish, which at the time was significant and still is, I suppose. But back then it really was. And I was a Catholic. Um, we had to do a course in order to become married. And when we did the course, um, it turned out that a lot of the things he was really good at, you know, I wasn't interested in and vice versa. So we're like this perfect two halves coming together, which is never a good thing. You should be two holes coming together and the relationship should be in the middle. Mm-hmm. But we were a great team. And um, we, um, but he was very different. And he was very clear about the fact that I was maybe, you know, beneath him in a lot of ways. And that him being a Protestant, um, he knew all about money and about the systems, about investing, about the game. And I was kind of the more creative one at home. But my goal was always to have a little family. And his goal was to have a Porsche by the time he was 30, be a captain by the time he was 30, and hopefully work for Cathay Pacific on the jumbo by the time he was 40. So that's the I'll be happy when syndrome, which I think is a micro example of what's going on in the world globally, because I'll be happy when syndromes are never happy. Um, So we went through and we got married. Um. And straight after we got married, he he started to change. I didn't know what had happened. Um, I didn't know until 2018 what had happened. Um, but he told me he had two personalities and one of them was thinking of crashing airplanes. And I was 26 and I was very, there was no support or help and a certain amount of, a lot of control there. Um, what do you mean one of them was about crashing airplanes? He told me that he had experience of two personalities with inside them. One of them was called Cuban. And um, I had at this stage got a very good job in Microsoft. So he was on a contract away. I said, you can come home. And he he wouldn't come home. He wanted to buy a Porsche or no, a Maserati or something. And I said, you need to choose between me and the money. Never say that to a Protestant airline pilot. And he said, I choose the money. And we broke up at that age. And I had a very good job. I purchased my dwelling off him. I was heartbroken and I was moving on. And then he came back and said, you need to take me back because I have this voice that's telling me to crash the airplanes and you're the only one that can stop it. Oh, it was was a lot on my shoulders. Okay, so he 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 had some kind of psychic or psychotic break and he was wanted help from you. Yes, or he knew me very well and he um he knew I would respond to, to that. It was like he created this brilliant thing where the perfect side of him was really good and anything bad was not him. It was this Cuban person or, or entity and therefore it was me and him against this third party who was in him, but it was my job to keep the him happy and satisfied so that the bad guy wouldn't come. It was tough going. 
Weird. Yeah. Okay. So did you take him back at that point? I did. Um, because I remember, you know, in Ireland as well at that time, and I, I, I didn't have much support in, in becoming a single person, you know, after a year and I did love him and I didn't mean my vows when I said I wanted to be with him forever. You didn't mean, or you did? I did. I did. So he, he came back and almost immediately went straight back into investing and then put us into a situation where we were in debt again. And then I was pregnant and on uh, eight, nine months into my pregnancy, just before I gave birth, uh, we were sitting in a kitchen under quite a lot of financial debt. I felt the baby flip in my stomach. Literally, I felt nauseous. I got sick. We were ready to go into the hospital, but I knew something. I just it was like a when I closed my eyes, this redness came in. I, I vomited. The It was like I was punched in the stomach. Mm. Um, I went down to have a shower to get ready to go into the hospital. We turned on the radio and he said, oh, my God, um, an airplane has flown into the Twin Towers. And that was the 9-11 hit. And I remember sitting down with him. And the first thing he said, as a 12,000 hour piloted command captain, he said, they that's not right. Those airplanes can't fly at that height and that speed without stalling. And hitting those buildings is like hitting needles in a haystack. I remember that. Yeah, he knew it was BS right away. Well, yes, but then pilots by nature are very um, de-escalating of everything. They're very, shh, they won't speak up. But yeah, he knew. And I knew at a level I couldn't, that the whole world had changed. So uh, the airlines were in trouble and he was spiraling down. He was losing a lot of weight. I had a newborn baby. Um, and then we moved to Hong Kong and he got his job out there that he'd wanted. And we had a peaceful year. And then the 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 Cuban came back again and it started. I was so happy. I was always happy with every little move we got because I thought he'd be happy. Give him what he wanted. He'd be happy. But then this sadness, this darkness would, would start to engulf him again. And um, then I started to adopt a baby over there. And uh, myself and Lily Rose came home and we had a very bad car accident. I was told I broke my neck. She was going to be brain damaged. And then I found out I was pregnant, um, went back to Hong Kong. Hold on one second. Hold on. You decided to adopt a baby. Why didn't you have another baby with him? You just thought adopting was the right thing to do. Well, yeah, we had gone through have Lily Rose and Mm -hmm. going through that, I kind of thought to myself, you know, this doesn't work. I'll just adopt. I just wanted it. I felt like I had so much extra love and I wanted to give it to a child. Perfect. And, okay. You know, it's natural to have your own, but then if you, if it wasn't work happening that we had our own, then I said, okay, we'll try this IVF thing. D- didn't think it was going to work. It did work. But then when I was in Hong Kong, I didn't want Lily Rose to be an only child. We had a lot of money and resources and there was a lot, I had a lot more love to give other children. No, that's great. That's we went beautiful. to adopt matched with a little girl uh, but I came home first to see the family, had the car accident, found out I was pregnant, went back to Hong Kong, was quite injured. Um, and then I was told that uh, my baby was going to be Down syndrome and they booked me in for an abortion. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. And in Hong Kong, you know, the doctors will look at you like you are the worst in the world if you're going to bring a Down syndrome child into the world. But then I also wasn't allowed to take the adopted baby because you're not allowed to take an adopted baby if you're pregnant. So there was a lot of grief over over that. 
And then I had my baby uh, fully expecting her to be Down syndrome. And uh, she wasn't. Not that it would have mattered to me if she was, because they're the ones with the extra chromosome. I kind of love Down syndrome children and people in general. Um, but she wasn't, as it turns out. And she's now 17. And she's the, the child that was in the house that I defended that I would. And we went through all of that. Um, his his problems got worse and worse. And again, he said he had this feeling about crashing the airplane. And at that stage, I said, I can't I can't handle this anymore, you know, and um. I went to Hong- to Thailand, which was an hour and a half away. And I said, look, keep everything. We had about three million assets. I said, you know, just just leave me with the children. I need to go home. I can't do this anymore. And I'd actually contacted or told him to contact the airline and get some help because I, I, I couldn't. Life changes when you have children and I couldn't carry him on my shoulders anymore. No. So yeah. We separated in Hong Kong. Then in 2004, we went to a counselor or a psychiatrist and he said that Keith was narcissistic, malignant, something, something. And he was delighted with himself. And he bought a book called Meeting the Shadow and he underlined it, Dorian Gray, serial killer books. And he explained it all to me and he goes, you see, I always knew I was better than everyone else. I don't have those emotions. This is how I think. And he was quite liberated. But it wasn't very liberating for me because, you know, it it was dreadful because he would hurt me just to see the expression on my face so that almost like a scientific experiment like how did it feel like he was okay like i am a i'm a psychopath and this is really great now i understand yeah and now you can understand you you understand now you know i'm not burdened with other emotions other than anger um he say (laughs) you know say to me your face oh you've got so much oh no shameless no shame actually quite proud of it and he said that's he's, what made he was mentally better. sick right I mean so he's mentally just gone well I I didn't know at the time because he seemed to be the one that had all his ducks in the row I was like he always made me feel like you know inferior to him but as it, it turns out in a lot of abusive relationships you find out that you are the strong one all the time and yeah you're trying to keep their fragile ego um in place and that takes a lot of strength and a lot of women don't realize that or men in situations but so, so did he have a weird was he abused as a child or something was that the issue or is he just born that way um he had written me letters describing nightmares and he used to wake, wake up with nightmares a lot screaming nightmares and he, he wrote about these bad dreams they had and they were horrific and it never occurred to me that they had actually happened but in 2018, not so long ago, um, I got to speak to his childhood friend who was mentioned in his nightmares. And yes, they were sexually abused from the age of, I think, five. Mm. To- so he was like created almost. He was that they was it on purpose or was he just had a bad family life? Well, his family uh, were like a bank. It was he wrote about his family. He said that morality was never relevant in the family. It was just about getting away with things. You know, you you could you could do whatever you wanted. Do as thou wilt. There mm. you go. Which is the whole law. Yeah. And there wasn't much love or affection there. And everything was about money and stocks and shares. That's how love and food, funnily enough, which he was quite obsessed with as well. Um, and he would use food a lot in control. 
and money. Um, so, yeah. But when I spoke to the other boy, uh, the other man who had been abused with them, he said to me, it doesn't excuse what he has done to you and the girls over the last 14 years. But he said, if he hasn't deal with it, it gets worse. So I think what turned out that happened that when I was pregnant uh, or when we had just got married and then I got pregnant, the the one of the, the men who had been sexually abused with them as a child came home from America and reported it to the police. And I think his mother or something rang him and said, look, James has now gone to the police jumping on the bandwagon. You better keep your mouth shut. And he didn't tell me. And Aww. that's when the Cuban figure appeared. And he was interfacing with the world as this really in control airline pilot with everything. Yet he had this lid on this, which probably kept the lid on all his emotions. So, I, I mean, at the same time, he was a jumbo captain. So at some point, you, you're you still responsible for your free will choices as you get older. And he made some really bad choices. Um, But I do, it did lead me into looking at on a global scale, what is this paedophilia and what role does it have? And is it just something that happens or is it actually a strategy that's used um, in some way to keep these hierarchical pyramids together. And 100% now I'd say, yes, it is. Well, and it's their blackmail. Um, it's their glue. Yeah. It's their ultimate glue. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So what, how did you go from there to where you're at right now, where you're being persecuted? So what was, what happened then? So we, we separated in Hong Kong. We did a full separation agreement. He put everything into my name and I said, that's not necessary. He went to uh, Sharon Sir, I think she is, who was the shark uh, pilot's uh, divorce person. He said a big drama about, I want to put everything into Lisa's name. She said, you're crazy. And he said to me, look, I trust you more than Cuban. So he put everything into my name, which was ridiculous. Uh, I didn't want it all. That's very interesting. Okay. But this was a strategy. Then I moved to Italy with the girls and I bought this um, house in Todi, uh, which is a town in Italy, a Templar uh town a seat of la sedia dei templari in italy and i found this house which is a whole story in its own right um called la chiesa di sant'andrea di, di todi from the the temples and i decided i was going to set up a little piece of peace there i was going to have a place that i could bring people who are going through stress etc and blah blah and i thought we had the best separation in the world he would fly over and back see the kids i didn't ask him what he was doing when he was away I thought we were good friends. I thought, you know, the girls didn't even necessarily know we were separated because they were too young to know what that word was. And daddy was flying all away. And I was building up this dream in Italy. And from so from 2004 to 2009, that's the way it was. And I then realized that the house in Italy required some work to be done. And I was looking at how I could get the investment to do that. And he said to me, well, why don't you remortgage your house back in Ireland? which is the one I had bought off him after we'd separated. And he, I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, look, the banks don't like dealing with you. You know, I'm, I'm the Protestant. And he said, I'll, I'll sort out that because I was full time in Italy, teaching the children Italian, dealing with architects, et cetera. And he was flying around and he had always controlled the finances anyway. So what I didn't realize is he would all my posts redirected to Italy, sorry, to Hong Kong, and then he was getting me to sign papers. He was he he was 10 miles ahead on a mission. And he basically, uh, with Bank of Ireland's assistance, um, got this mortgage fraudulently on me, defrauded me and got it into his bank account 
while he had encouraged me to commit to contracts over initially. And then when he had the money secured in his account and me committed to doing this project, he told my daughter he was buying Porsches and Maseratis with my money. And then when I stood up to him and said, what are you doing? We're separated. I realized that I thought we were separated, but he thought he had me in a cage and he was having a bachelor's life. And when he saw that I was moving into my power, um, he had plotted this. So I told him to leave. And then that night in December 2008, yeah, and I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but he almost killed me. And while I was being strangled, the one thought that I had was when he does this, he's going to go straight up and kill the children. So I had to implore to him that if he did kill me, that he would end up in prison or the you know he didn't like to be inconvenienced and he stopped and he went straight back from Cuban who he claimed was doing this to me not him back to Keith and then the next day he came up asked to rub arnica on me told me everything would be okay if I just did what I said he said wrote because he then felt he had the money secured and he went off and I looked and I was in pieces I told the children that I'd fallen down the stairs and my friends came over from Ireland we packed my dog there left the bread on the table came home where I thought I'd be safe in Ireland and that's where the fun started in 2010 well okay so let me ask you about him now he claimed he had this Cuban character he has a split personality it, but you think that that personality really merged with his other one and he was very aware I don't know, but at one stage I, I spoke to one of the civil aviation psychiatrists um, because it came important later on when he actually nosedived the simulator um, during a check. And he said to me, you know, people like him don't ever kill themselves, he said, and they are very clever at, um, he said, it worked. Whatever he said to you worked. So he said it could have been something that he contrived. Other people would see it as being it was like a possession, you know, or else it was. I, I just don't know. You know, nobody knows anybody's heart. But I will tell you this. When he was Cuban, he was a different person. It was I mean, weird. Like he took on a whole new persona. Oh, yeah. he, he, no, it I was mean, like he had a different soul yeah, or something. Like he, Keith would not eat even, you know, the, the Chinese takeaways that had, is it MSG in them or glute, whatever that? Yeah, was. yeah. He wouldn't eat that. He was the purest person no medication you know he he loved Ayurveda he did martial arts he did Tai Chi and he was a really really lovely guy with these kind of greenish eyes when he snapped into Cuban his eyes were black he would eat raw meat everything wow. about him was different I mean he was his clothing was different he would listen to these songs like Faithless and you know all that. he he was a different person but I cannot I mean, there's four, those, you know, have integrity with your word, take nothing personally, make no assumptions, do your best. But I will tell you my experience of him was he was, it was, it was a different being. It was a different, there was something. Like he was being possessed or something. It was different. Yeah. Or, wow. okay. yeah. And also Keith was aware of Cuban to a degree, Cuban detested Keith. They spoke differently. Everything was different about them. Yeah, there was an inner battle going on. And I don't know whether it was triggered. 
in his personality from or I don't think so, or whether it was the would you call it the archon or the egregore of, of sexual abuse? I don't know. Or neglect or from his mother. I don't know. But but at this point, you realize I can't help him and he's hurting my children and me. And we just I got to get out of here. So yeah. then what happened once the whole. Oh, I came home to Ireland and I was it was in January. So it was in the middle of the school year. And I, of course, always told the girls, oh, we're just home for a trip or whatever. And he was following me around. He He seemed to know where I was all the time. And then I discovered that Bank of Ireland, again, in Dublin Airport branch, were giving him my personal banking details. So when he was speaking to the children, he was like, oh, your mother was in this shop or she was in that shop. And and then I was losing my hair and I was having shingles and I was paranoid. And I, and I constantly kept feeling like, say, if I park my car in the underground and you're hearing your feet walking, I had this constant feeling I was going to get a blow to the back of my head and and I was going to be killed and frightened. Um, and then I had no experience of the Irish court system or anything. Um, he triggered the um, the Irish jurisdiction, which technically wasn't correct because we've been living in Italy. If I'd called the police in Italy and if I divorced him in Italy and I'm fluent in Italian, we would have been done in six months. But you see, I was still protecting Keith from Cuban. I, I would consider... The attack he did on Italy and me was Cuban attacked both of us. That was the way I thought for the way he made me think. Well, that, that's wow. Okay. Well, he felt that way too, though, it seemed like, or he at least projected that. Yes. Yes. He would have. And also, but then he would have said, you know, it, it was my fault. It was my job to keep Cuban at bay by keeping Keith happy. But Keith was impossible to keep happy because there was a black hole. And when that black hole wasn't fed, Cuban came out. Oh, weird okay because he he just didn't have what he needed and oh geez okay it's complicated and a psychologist or psychiatrist well it's no different to the irish government at the moment it's no different to tyranny i mean on a micro scale it's exactly what happens and going back to that thing i said if your needs aren't addressed and you go over the bridge to desire and that little satan grows which is a hungry little thing and then that connects up to the archon or egregore which is an infinite black hole well then you have a situation with that this little person is constantly trying to feed a black hole it gets instant gratification more hungry more hungry and further and further away from its needs you try loving someone like that and feeding that black hole and then try walking away from it if you you know the way i would look at it is he was I'm, dependent on you exactly for food and it's almost like to use phones as analogy, it's like I was a little Nokia brick phone, right? And I just thought, well, I was never told it was anything special. I was never asked what I need. You know, I was brought up with a very aggressive and, and strict environment and shame based and everything. Um, So I was like a little block Nokia phone and I met him and he presented like a smartphone with all the bells and whistles. But what I didn't know is his smartphone had a very low battery and my little Nokia was connected to the biggest source of power. And I didn't know that. I thought everyone was. So he recognized this. So he would tell me how my little block Nokia hasn't got the cool interface that his did. And then while he was talking to me, he would work out my, I, my password or I had no boundaries or password. And he'd look at my three deepest uh, hopes and needs and my three biggest fears. And he would flash project 
that in a relationship. And that's the abuse cycle, the golden phase, you know, the abuse, the, the actual cycle. And your your brain then is constantly. And what you look at is actually a black mirror. They reflect your soul back to you. So you're in falling in love with the best part of yourself, but they make you think you're nothing. Well, and, and you, you, I don't mean to interrupt and you learn so much. And do you think this is what we're experiencing? You just said this, this is what we're experiencing in society at large. Yes. And I'm so grateful for, um, I mean, I can't imagine if we, I hadn't gone through everything I've gone through. And if at this moment in time, I was still in Hong Kong, married to Keith, earning him earning 30 grand a month, me, you know, drinking and on antidepressants like most of the women ended up over there, a lot of them, you know, with kids who were brought up with domestic helpers and um, huge amount of money. And him then in order to keep that job, having te- tests done up his nose every couple of days, you know, forced injection when he didn't even take a thing, you know, living in Hong Kong. I don't know what that alternative reality would be like for me. I don't know. And even though it appears I'm in a worse situation, I can see what's going on in the world. I can see it because when I was a child, I was like, what, what is going on? This isn't natural. None of this is natural. Then I went lucky enough to meet brother David and I went through this polymath study of everything and he tooled me up. And then I had this experience with Keith. And then from 2010, I had this experience of seeing behind the wizard's curtain of the so-called systems and also the work I did in Microsoft. So I saw behind the wizard's curtains of the globalists. I saw behind the wizard's curtain of the legal profession, of the government, of the police. 